Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 10 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a positively terrific show lined up for you today. Hypnosis Weekly hits double figures in style today. In a short while, I will be sharing with you an interview with husband and wife duo Colonel Larry and Cheryl Elman. Larry is the son of the legendary Dave Elman, and together they continue to teach and share his work around the world. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guests Larry and Cheryl Elman this week. I shall be asking them about the enduring legacy of Dave Elman and how it is today. And we'll get some major insight into the life of the man himself, his background and his approach to hypnosis and therapy in general. We'll round things off with the Hypnosis Factoid of the Week before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do consider sharing this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. Since first making contact with Larry and Cheryl Elman, I've had a number of Skype calls with them and their lovely dog who gate crashes the calls too. I think if I had recorded all of those calls, I could sell them and they'd be incredibly popular. Firstly, they are worth it for the sheer entertainment value. I had a right royal hoot during all my communications with them. We really laughed together, shared stories, shared anecdotes. And when we disagreed on theory or application of hypnosis, we concluded it would be best resolved over a few pints in the pub. Those discussions were also filled with insight and lots of useful information, like that which you'll be hearing in this week's edition of Hypnosis Weekly. Today's interview is certainly one of the livelier ones I've offered because things were so jovial between us. I'd love to give you more insight into them as a couple because they're simply lovely, they love life, they're happy, filled with laughter and make a remarkable team. I'll comment more on this in today's show later on. So, Get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, and enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've been discussing, I am delighted and thoroughly honoured to have joining me on this week's Hypnosis Weekly the one and only Cheryl Elman, and of course, the one and only Larry Elman. A very warm welcome to you both. Well, we're so excited to be here. Thank you so much for your invitation, Adam. Thank you. Now, let's you. let's get straight down to it then. I, I, you know, I, I almost felt embarrassed when I was writing up this question because, you know, I'm guessing for some people it might seem really obvious that with you being related to Dave Elman, um, um, how you then got into this field. But perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about about your background and about that background and how you arrived at where you are now with, with your standing and, and so on. Certainly. Uh, when I was about, oh, I don't know, nine or ten, Dad began teaching medical hypnosis, and I kept bugging him to... Uh, let me take his course. 
Uh, he initially said no, and then because I'm you know a kid, and then he took me over to his bookcase, pulled out a couple of books on hypnosis, and said, "Read these and give me a written report, and I'll <laughs> think about it." Uh, you say that to a kid of that age, and the answer is going to be, "Oh, dad." <laughs> yeah. But I read them, uh, quite a number of them, and then he allowed me to take the course. I was about 11 at the time. Partway through the course, he said, Larry, you're not doing your homework. <laughs> I, I looked rather bewildered because, uh, well, the homework was to hypnotize 25 people that week. Uh, and uh, do the following medical procedures on them. And I'm not a doctor, and I didn't have 25 friends. So I explained <laughs> that, and I was told, well, go out and be a stage hypnotist and get 25 people. That's your homework. If you're going to be in the course, you're going to meet the standards that everybody else does. So I became the world's worst stage hypnotist. <laughs> I, I did legitimately hold my father's uh, original vaudeville title in that I was the youngest stage hypnotist. At age 11, there's much competition for that. <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, uh, I was probably the world's fastest in that I was doing stage hypnosis using my father's induction techniques, which were uh, the, the world records of the time. But I still pretty much stunk at it. Uh, Kept this up till I got to college. In college, I found myself doing a different form of hypnosis in that I would be used for uh, academic test fears and things of that nature. I, I think of myself, or what I was thought of by my, uh, by my um, dorm mates as the, uh, the, local, uh, uh, the local brain medicine cabinet. Um, and I kept that up till I entered the Air Force, where I was pretty quickly informed that uh, if the uh, commanding general on a base considers hypnosis to be a tool of the devil, a second lieutenant <laughs> so was yeah. not exactly wise. And so from then until about 2008, my hypnosis uh, work, so to speak, was answering questions on my father and doing a bit of reading. I was not doing anything active. Sure. In 2008, uh, Don Patterson, also known as Shawn Michael Andrews, asked to do an interview on me. And the DVD of that interview paid off all its development costs in a matter of about a month and a half. Great. And began selling quite a bit. And I was asked to speak at the uh, National Guild of Hypnotists. And I did and went back into the business. Yeah. And thank goodness you did. And for me... I had been hypnotized to stop smoking 16 years earlier than when um, when Sean Michael Andrews came and saw us, and um, and it had worked. And I was two and a half to three and a half packs a day, so I knew it worked. Um, but my background was in special education. Uh, I'm an artist, uh, and I was in business administration, sales and marketing in Manhattan for years, and for my own business down in Florida and here, here in yeah. North Carolina and um, while they were interviewing I kept trying to feed them and <laughs> they just kept talking 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 from early in the morning till in the evening so when I one of the times I went down there uh, I don't remember now whether Don had stuck my hand to the table or to my head or both <laughs> I just looked in and I said and knowing that it works I said I want to do this do you have classes and that's how I got started in it Great. And, and, and Sean Michael Andrews was my instructor. Great. And he did a superb job. The man is an excellent instructor. Yes. A good friend, a great guy to teach with, and really, we can't say enough good about him. And as Cheryl says proudly, he was her instructor. And so <laughs> since then, Larry and I have pretty much been team teaching, much like his dad and his mom did. Great. Great. I, I love that idea. And um, I'm sure that somewhere along the line, um, Sean Michael Andrews has just hypnotised the planet because everybody <laughs> thinks he is the, just the loveliest guy around, myself included. Um, now, obviously, with with such a background, um, 
Um, I, I'm really interested to know um, um, how you define hypnosis and how you arrived at the definition and, and how you go about explaining hypnosis to your, to your students in class, um, especially if they're completely new or to clients or to, or to people that are just, just intrigued and interested in, in, in the history and, and so on. Um, um, tell me a bit about that. Well, I, I personally use my father's definition. Hypnosis is the bypassing of the critical faculty and inserting selective thinking. Mm. Uh, however, when you say this to somebody, they kind of scratch their heads and say, <laughs> what's that? Yeah. And the other way to explain it is the, by accessing uh, your subconscious, you're able to use a larger portion of your brain than if you're just concentrated on today's events. And when you're able to use that larger portion, you're able to control many things that you didn't think were controllable. This yeah. allows you to do all sorts of uh, improvement in academics, uh, control over uh, your body's feeling of pain or discomfort, um, a whole bunch of things, both medical and psychological. Yeah. Uh, the best way to explain it is just to give examples, because when you try to explain it with long words, somebody will in invariably interrupt you with, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so, so tell me then where you're at now. I, I'm, who, who's influenced you? Um, who are your major influences in this field? You know, are, are there any books and authors that have taught you more? Um, um, and, and what teachers have been the most influential upon you? And perhaps you could give me a little bit of an idea as to why. Well, clearly my father and yeah. my father's teachings are yeah. the uh, bedrock of what I do and what I believe. Uh, Dad himself considered uh, Hippolyte Bernheim's book to be the best book on hypnosis simply because Bernheim was quite willing to admit when he made a mistake or when he didn't understand something. Yeah. So there's all sorts of places in it where he says, beats the heck out of me. Well, research. Uh, I find it an extremely difficult book to read, and while I place it high on the list, it's one that, I warn you, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, besides that, there's uh, Henry Monroe. Um, Henry tends to inflate himself to some extent, but he's a very easy read, and he does have an awful lot of very, very relevant things to say. In both of these cases, remember that they're writing around the turn of the uh, uh, turn of the century, around the late 1890s, early 1900s. Sure. So they're writing in an entirely different society than we live in today. Yeah. Uh, another of my father's favorites was Caprio. I've browsed it. I've never fully read all of Caprio's work. And beyond that, um, I'd say another great influence on me has been uh, Don Patterson, just watching how he does what I know my father taught. Because, of course, there's the intervening years when I was doing nothing, yeah. and Don is a great refresher. Uh, for the other uh, current authors, I usually read their, their uh, papers for hypnosis conventions yeah. and their articles in the, uh, in the journals, but I am very seldom sitting down and reading one of their books cover to cover. Sure. Uh, just from overload. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, throughout the experience and, you know, throughout the, the, the sort of witnessing that, that, that has gone on, you know, a lifetime of being exposed to the, to the field of hypnosis, um, um, what have been some of the more impressive, you know, or one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've that you've directly witnessed, or or, or you've 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 witnessed sort of secondhand, perhaps? I think the the most impressive was actually secondhand because I would not have been uh, particularly welcome in an actual operating room. No, sure. but I know all the details, and there were there were photos and movies and things of that nature. Uh, there was a gentleman, this is back in the 1950s, yeah. who had a heart condition that was bad enough that if they didn't operate that week, he would die. Yeah. Uh, they also were in a hospital where the gentlest of the anesthetics was 
sufficiently strong that it would kill him. Wow. So it was, uh, what do we do now? Luckily for the gentleman, both the anesthesiologist and the um, uh, heart surgeon had been students in my father's class. So they jointly called dad and said, would hypnosis work in this situation? And my father's reply was, I don't know, it's never been tried. <laughs> so they said, would he be there in the uh, operating room as if not a coach? And they would try it. And he was there, and the operation was a success, and the man went on to a uh, much longer and useful life. Wow. Um, the, um, that, was, that was, by the way, uh, the first open-heart surgery uh, done in that area at that time, and certainly the only one uh, in the U.S. that was ever done without chemical anesthesia. Wow. Uh, the, the other thing that I remember as particularly impressive, and this one I witnessed personally several times, uh, Jacques Romano had spent several years as a monk in Tibet. Yeah. And uh, the result is he had control over all things that other people didn't. He would have doctors instrument him, stethoscopes, um, blood, uh, blood pressure uh, devices, whatever was the instrumentation of the time, he would then, while standing and lecturing, stop his heart. Uh, visibly, at least. Uh, visibly, at least. And would go on lecturing. Uh, <laughs> didn't hurt him. After that was in the room, passed out out of shock. He'd go on. Uh, after about five minutes of this, he would take a sip of water. Uh, I think the sip of water was probably to demonstrate that he had uh, total movement of muscles and whatever, uh, because just standing there, you know, th this added, I'm still around to it. And then he'd announce he was going to restart his heart, and bingo, it would start. And the doctors would be amazed, and he would say, well, this is an example of self-hypnosis. I posted this on the, on the um, Internet. And immediately got all sorts of hate mail that I must be lying. Well, I'm not lying. I witnessed it. I haven't told you how he did it. I've told you he claimed it was self-hypnosis. I accept the claim. Uh, I noticed his time with the monks in Tibet. And I don't explain it. I just say self-hypnosis has a large amount of abilities that we don't fully understand today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I, you know, I, I concur. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm staggered. I find it staggering um, um, that, that, you know, that the application of hypnosis for open heart surgery is just brilliant. Um, but, but for it to be done back at that time, I think, makes it even more astounding as far as I'm concerned. It's just a lovely thing to hear. Um, if you could go back to when when you started out, um, look at you know as a hypnosis training professional, you know knowing the stuff that you know now. Is there anything you'd do differently? And if so, what would that be? Is there any advice you know the person that you are today would give to that younger you? And perhaps you'd consider extending that advice to any of the hypnotherapists or hypnosis professionals that are listening today. Absolutely. What I concentrated on as an 11-year-old going through my father's class was learning the techniques well enough to use them. So sure. I was entirely technique-centered. Yeah. What I should have been was centered on why does it work? Because if you understand that, then the techniques come easier, and then the techniques become flexible so you can use them in situations that you had not visualized. I should have been studying why does it work. I wasn't. I was studying technique. Yeah. And I would advise any hypnosis instructor today to make that modification in how he teaches, and I'd advise any student today to bear that in mind. Understand yeah. why it works, understand its pluses and minuses, the techniques will then come by themselves. Yeah, when we chatted last week and and we sort of touched upon that, I um, that was like music to my ears when you said that. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed hearing that so much. Understand the underpinning rationale of the process and then you don't have to worry about trying to do it verbatim as you've seen other people doing it. Um, tell me... 
what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to hypnosis? I would like to approach that from a philosophical viewpoint. Great. Um, too many people today, including some very close colleagues who are close friends, talk about the art of hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, I think art's the wrong word. Uh, you can have art as as simple as chopsticks on a piano or a five-year-old's drawing in kindergarten, and yet uh, Beethoven's symphony and a uh, Renoir painting are also art. Uh, it, it's too broad and undefined a word. Art of hypnosis is stated because these people note that there's variations among both clients and practitioners. Yeah. Then you come along with those who say, Hypnosis is a science. I've spent my whole adult career as a research scientist. I can cite item after item where I did research science. And hypnosis is not a science because you don't have total repeatability from case to case. Sure. So what I conceive of it as is that hypnosis is a craft. And I'm using the word craft in the sense of the medieval craft guilds. It's a combination of art and science. It's looking for what its technology should be, but it isn't there yet. So it combines the best of art and science. Art in that there are things in it that should be done with good taste, and there are rules that you should follow to avoid foolish failures. Yeah. Science in that it can be, to a large extent, repeated and is therefore a useful tool, but it's still developing, which is why when somebody says the hypnotherapist profession, well, yeah, I practice that profession, but I practice it remembering that because it is a craft, that there are people in it who can teach me, there are people in it that I can teach, and uh, some areas I function at about the level of an apprentice at one of the old uh, 15th century uh, guilds. At some other uh, particular procedure, I'd be at the equivalent of a journeyman. I'm a master only in some specific areas. And I'm aware of this, and I accept uh, teaching from others for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I... I, I incredibly wise um, um you know as far as um i mean we're, we're going to get on to and we're going to delve into the enduring legacy of dave elman himself and, and that work later on in our discussion um for now where can people learn uh, go to learn more about your work learn more about your teaching and your approach to hypnosis um well our website is www dot dave elman hypnosis institute dot com yeah and we usually um we have besides a store with all our training products and we also on the front page usually keep a calendar of where we're going to be traveling Great. and where we and where we have traveled so that's a good way to keep up with us um, um, because because you are coming here, aren't you? You're coming here to the UK later on this year. Um, that's 2014. I'm sorry if you're listening in 2015, you missed it. Um, but if you're listening to well, this, we'll come back. Sooner, <laughs> yeah, 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 you come back some other time. Um, yeah. But um, I, I, yeah, you're coming here in 2014, and I'll, I'll, the, um, the the link to that will put and will include um, um, on this hip. hip uh, hypnosis weekly episode will include that but that's um exuberancehypno.co.uk forward slash dave elman training and, and i will put a direct link for that you know so go and have a look at that um, um if you want to come and train with cheryl and larry it's a very rare opportunity to do that here um, um so do come and check that out and have a look at that link and that will be on november 15th and 16th saturday and sunday and uh, we will be working with uh, Dave Savitt. Yeah. Um, and it's in Wattsford, Watford, um, uh, um, in in the UK. So, yes. um, so we're looking forward to that. Also, we are looking for people, uh, possibly on Monday and Tuesday. We are looking to do our first train the trainers course. Right. Uh, yes. 
for people interested in being able to teach Dave Elman. So we are interviewing people um, that might be interested in doing that. Uh, and they can come from other countries. I know that we have people interested. And the best way to look into that is to call us personally because we want to be able to interview you yeah. and find out about your experience. So our um, either email us or our phone number is 252-432-2205. That's 252-432-2205, and we're in the United States. Great. I will, I will include that number and, and the email address um, of all of that information um, um, within within the episode. Um, thank you ever so much for that initial insight into into both of you. Um, um, we will be right back with Cheryl and Larry in a short while as we examine and have a look at the enduring legacy of the work of Dave Elman. <music> I loved every minute of that interview. Now, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. A bugbear alert. Yep, first up this week, I wanted to mention a bugbear of mine. Yes, I know you are thinking that. What another one, Adam? Each week, I see numerous stories put out on the internet that are entitled Hypnosis for Anxiety, Hypnosis for Depression, Hypnosis for Stress. Either web pages are titled this way or provincial media are proliferating these kinds of titles. And I just don't get it. Am I being pedantic? Why would I want to use hypnosis for these things? It kind of insinuates that hypnosis will give you these things. Why not write headlines that state hypnosis to overcome anxiety, hypnosis to be free of depression, hypnosis to alleviate stress, or even better, Hypnosis to be more calm, hypnosis to be happier, hypnosis for relaxation. Hmm, I'll take some deep breaths, wipe the foam that's frothing at my mouth and move on. On to actual articles of interest. Well, the population of Borneo can heave a sigh of relief. They can all rest in their beds tonight. As reported by the Borneo Post online, the police have caught the hypnosis criminal. In this article that I'm referring to today, it states that earlier this month a victim was exposed to hypnosis, being somehow wielded by two people who took the victim's money. The victim claims to have followed the instructions of the hypnosis, but in the midst of it all realised that he was being deceived and that hypnosis had been used. Firstly, why on earth did he not realise that sooner? Secondly, it was not hypnosis eliciting the responses necessarily here, it was false belief. It was manipulation and other contextual and framework issues that we could discuss at length. Thirdly, what nonsense. I rarely see hypnosis portrayed in such an incorrect fashion as this article does. Congratulations to the Borneo Post Online. In an article, another article, entitled Try Hypnosis for a Good Night's Sleep, we have something to cheer about. Because yes, indeed, the India TV news highlights some recent research that has been popular in the media recently and has featured in a number of other outlets. It highlights a study, an impressive study, that appeared in the Journal of Sleep by a team of researchers uh, at the University of Zurich in Switzerland that shows hypnosis to improve the quality of sleep without the need for drugs. The results are very impressive and show highly hypnotizable women in the study to have experienced 80% more slow-wave sleep as a result of listening to a hypnosis recording. And I consider that to be marvellous stuff. Really marvellous. Links to all of these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. Next up. We have this week's professional discussion. Now, I told Larry and Cheryl Elman that I'd love to explore with them the enduring legacy of the work of Dave Elman, whose book and methods are still incredibly popular today and are regarded incredibly highly by many frontline hypnotherapists. And what is it then that continues to appeal to so many this far away from when the work was originally done and constructed and so on? 
In addition to the approach that we explore, I was incredibly keen to know more about the man himself. What was he like behind his work? In one of our discussions, Larry told me about a time that Dave Ellman had pointed to a man named Jacques Romano and said, you see that man? That's the only man in the world who's a better hypnotist than I am. And we laughed together as we discussed that. And I was reminded of a great quote from my footballing hero, Brian Clough, who, when reflecting on his career, stated, I wouldn't say I was the best manager in the business, but I was in the top one. Now, Larry spoke fondly of his father's confidence then, and that he displayed perhaps a large ego at times, but that he was also humble. I'm certain that much like the Darren Brown quote from the Martin S. Taylor episode of this podcast, Dave Ellman's perceived credibility in his day, along with the expectation of those he worked with, on top of his own confidence in his abilities, contributed greatly to the incredible results he achieved using hypnosis with patients. Um, I think you'll find this week's discussion absolutely fascinating and very illuminating too. I know I did. Here it is. So I welcome back um, Cheryl and Larry Ellman. Um, one of the things that I was really keen to pursue and explore with them when, when I approached them and asked them to come and be involved with this podcast was to look at this, this enduring legacy of Dave Ellman and the, the, the continuing popularity of, of his approach and his work. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll go straight into that. Um, Cheryl, Larry, could you, could you give us some insight into the Dave Ellman approach, first of all, for people that are perhaps not as familiar um, um, to, 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 to that approach to hypnosis and hypnotherapy? What are some of the main principles that stand out as important? Well, the main principle to me is the fact that it's not simply a series of specific procedures. There's an entire philosophy of it. Right, yeah. So that, so that if you... Uh, if you examine a procedure carefully, you will find a bunch of common things. One of them is, the primary one is, it's all direct suggestion. Uh, it's very rare when uh, an indirect suggestion will be used. I won't say it never happens, I'll say it's extremely rare. Yeah. Uh, in addition, everything is client-centered. You are watching the individual client. Can you do a group induction? My wife does them all the time. Yeah. Can you do group treatment? I would not suggest it. Uh, so you're client, very much client-centered. You're using what I call a process approach. You know what you're going to do. You don't know exactly what words you're going to use. The reason that this is important is that in normal conversation, that's how you approach things. Yeah. You vary what you're saying depending upon whether or not the point you're getting across connects with the person you're talking with and whether it helps your argument or whether it offends a person. But you're doing the same thing in hypnosis. So the result is trying to memorize a script is foolish. You want to have the flexibility of not being scripted, of knowing what you're doing and speaking directly to the person. In the sure. words of, of James Scott, to be a hypnotist, not a scriptnotist. Right, yes, yes. Um, um, because, because, I mean, the, the, the induction, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sort of bow down to popular misconception, but, but really, um, Dave Ellman is very famous for the Dave Ellman induction. He is, but the thing that most people miss is that the Dave Ellman induction, which he usually referred to as his three-minute routine, is not the only induction he taught. It's no. the one that he would teach first in a class, and he would teach it in a way where you picked up on the points I just made. Yeah. And then after you got that across, you would say, now, what else can I do in the way of an induction? Yeah. And one of the next ones he would do would be the catalyst induction, 
which has a very simple form. He used it with a cigarette. I have to use it with a sip of water because uh, cigarettes are now not a good social media. <laughs> but he would, he would look at somebody straight in the eye and he'd say, you know, it's an odd thing. By the time I take three and he'd say, uh, puffs on the cigarette, I'll say sips of water, uh, you will find that you're in hypnosis. Then you take the first sip and you say, your eyes are getting so heavy. You're so relaxed. You just want to go into hypnosis. Second sip, similar uh, instruction. Yeah. Third sip, their eyes are closed and they're there and you just start deepening like mad. It's not an instant induction as we use today, but it's fairly close to an instant induction. You've caught them unawares. You've given them a rational series of instructions and you've talked them into it. Yeah. Now, once you've done both the Dave Elman induction and the Catalyst induction, the other two dozen or so of his inductions become simply logical modifications to match a situation. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that that's part of, you know, uh, the Dave Elman induction and his Catalyst induction and a variety of the inductions he used were more considered rapid inductions as yeah. opposed to uh, a lot of the inductions that are done today. Um, uh, which would be instant inductions, yeah. you know, yeah. which is that it just takes that second to, 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 to put them under, but you have to deepen or they come right back up. Sure. So it's, it's just a philosophy that, that difference. But both of them, you know, are just a matter of moments instead of a progressive relaxation that may take 25 minutes. Yeah. So it just it's a shorter period of time. And there's a variety of different ways and different styles of doing them. So Dave Elman's were among the rapid inductions as opposed to the total instant inductions. Yeah. There's, a, there's a point I left out earlier, two, two or three points I left out earlier. One is a rapid induction is its own convincer. Because yes. in the back of a person's mind, particularly on the first induction, is, wow, if I went in this fast, this guy must be good, therefore I'm going to listen to anything he says. Yes. So it's its own convincer. But the other thing is that all of the steps in the, uh, in the Dave Elman induction involve tests. And every one of the tests is set up that the test is simultaneously a test, a convincer, and a deepener. You're a fool as a hypnotist if you don't add at least some deepening to every test you make. That's right. You did wonderfully on that. Now go deeper. Or yeah. that's right, what you just did drove you deeper. Don't you notice how it did? Yeah. Uh, just that one sentence added to any test you have makes it a test convincer and a deepener. And the, the last of the ones I left out is, of course, careful semantics. You, you never use a word that is going to have an effect other than what you're trying for. To, to give you, you the simplest one of those, remember Dad was teaching physicians and dentists, never use the word pain, use the word discomfort. As sure. soon as you use pain, even if you're saying you will not have pain, the person flinches. Yes. So you just don't use the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm really interested um, in that, in that idea that it is uh, a philosophy um, um, of approach to hypnosis really like that um, one of the things that I, I'm so intrigued about you know all the times that we've that we've spoken previously um, you know I, I'm always interested in, in sort of sticking my nose in a little bit and and finding out about the real man you know I, I, whenever I've met people that, that have directly trained with or know someone that are you know that, that have the kind of status and the standing within the field I'm always interested to know you know what were they like what were they like as a person you know beyond kind of legend uh, and so on so so what can you tell us about Dave Elman, the man? You know, how, how did he operate with his work? What sort of a person was he? Um, and do you think that the real Dave Elman is represented in, in his work and, and, and what, what others know of him through his work? I think it is. Um, you've got a combination of humility in certain areas and a very, very large ego in others. Uh, you have a very complex character here. 
I'm often amused by little things. One of the ones I, I really get a kick out of, I wish I could remember which particular uh, lesson this was in, but he lectured the class very carefully on not making a particular error in semantics when doing a particular procedure. Yeah. Having given this lecture on that, he uh, called up somebody from the, uh, from the class to, for him to demo it on them and made exactly that error in the middle of his demo. And you've never done that, have you? I've never done that. <laughs> it, it humanizes him. Yeah. Another one that I, that I get a, a personal big charge out of is I went to the class the night that he gave a, a very extensive lecture on self-hypnosis and its uses. The next day, we're caught in on a road that is basically a traffic jam. You're not going to get to a gas station. You're not going to be able to pull off the road. It is just plain. You're stuck when he begins to fidget. And my mother is in the seat beside the driver, and she notices his fidgeting. And uh, I'm in the back seat, and the way the rearview mirror was set, I'm watching both of their faces. And she suddenly says, Dave, what's the matter? And he says, I've got a wee-wee. <laughs> and she, she looks at, at the traffic jam and she says, are you going to make it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and from the back seat, I said, Dad, you lectured on self-hypnosis last night. Why not try it? And what, I, what is still in my memory to this day is this look of total surprise on his face. He hadn't thought of that. <laughs> And of course he did so, and of course it worked. Yeah. No, no problem. Yeah. But this is an example of he knew something, but like all of us, knowing it and applying it can be two different things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing that I remember very fervently is his approach to ethics. He had extremely rigid ethics. Yeah. Um, yet he also was willing to listen to a discussion of where that might not apply or what are the exceptions. And if you convinced him, he'd accept an exception, but it still had to be within what is justice. That's what I was taught. That yeah. was just strong. He also was a speed reader. I've seen him sit down just after dinner on an evening and devour a 500-page book in one sitting. Wow. Um, just amazing. I think of myself as being pretty good, but I can't. I can't match him. No way. Mm. I know that when we spoke before, you you mentioned him traveling and going from city to city, day to day to day, and working long hours. Yes, it was more like a milk run. What yeah. we would call a milk run. And uh, being that doctors could not necessarily take off and come and study with him all in one shot. Um, um, Pauline and Dave would travel and they would set up a circle of cities um, and they would travel that circuit that circuit for 10 weeks yeah. and and each each Monday night they were in Cincinnati um, the next Tuesday uh, each Tuesday night they were in another another city so back then there were no interstates so it was slow going he went through a lot of cars yeah you know he didn't make cars to go 100 and 200 thousand miles back then and no. he'd go through a, a car a year at least right yes and and he he had a very interesting thing he did and that was every single time that he had gone a certain number of miles and it was usually the same city he would just tell tell the bellhop turn the car over to the driver from so-and-so, and it's to be worked on overnight and in perfect shape when I get up in the morning. And the car would disappear and be, you know, back in the morning having all the service done. And this was at a time when automotive places ran uh, 9 to 5, and they just didn't do this, but they would do it for him. And he became famous for this, so that it, when he got up to, say, 30 or 35,000 miles on his vehicle, he would simply send a notice to the dealer of that brand in every city he was teaching in that year saying, I'm about to trade in my car. This and this is what the car is like. How fast can you deliver the identical car at a good price? I'm taking bids. <laughs> and and the, the, um, 
auto places of the time, that was when it was legal to turn back the speedometer, would know it was a perfectly maintained cream puff. And they knew they could turn back the speedometer and, and sell it well above the used car average. So they would make bids that were phenomenal. And so he'd pick up a new car anywhere from once every four to six months. Yes. So they would also, as they did this circuit, they would have the class in the evening. So the doctors yes. would work all day and they'd come to the class. And then they would, wherever the class was being held, that usually had to close at, I think you said, Larry, around oh, 10 o'clock. Oh, no, usually between 11 and midnight. And it would close. And often by then, Dave and Pauline had not had dinner because they would be traveling and and then get there and have the class, they would go to the diner and many of the doctors would go with them and, and they would find an all-night diner and they would sit and, and, and go a few more hours. And then Dave and, and Pauline would go to sleep and sleep late in the morning and then get up and, and, and drive to the next city and start all over again. Yeah, I know, I know each of the times I took the course, uh, I'd get to bed about 2 or 3 a.m., which is rather unusual for a teenager. Uh, and that was just because of what uh, what Cheryl just, just related. Yeah. I, I mean, after we had our discussion about those hours before, um, I vowed that I would never complain about my own training schedule ever again. Um, <laughs> um, and and um, um, you mentioned and you sort of touched upon before, one of the, one of the problems that he encountered was, was some of the some of the egos of some of the physicians in the 1950s? Oh yeah, the the physicians in the 1950s. First of all, they were unusually rich, and second of all, they were unusually uh, respected. Unusually respected, but unusually uh, overly conceited. Uh, separate from hypnosis, I'll give you one example. I was working yeah. at an airport as a young apprentice. And a physician drove up with his Cadillac, parked it such that they could not move the planes in or out of the hangar, which immediately hung all flight operations, came, had to come to a screeching halt, walked into the office of the president of the company, carrying one of these little uh, doctor's bags that were common in those days, upended it on the guy's desk, out came out a pile of money in large denomination bills, he pointed at the best airplane on the lot and said, you just sold that to me along with full training. I'll be in on this, this date and time for my first lesson, and I better have a dedicated instructor, and then walked out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't know the amount of money, but I know the airplane at that time was selling for multi-tens of thousands of dollars, which yeah. today in the millions, yeah. and this was just mind-boggling. This is the ego these doctors had. So the result was dad had to be very careful about some of the things he said. I did not know, I did not learn of permission to touch until 2008 because it was never taught in my father's class. Why not? Because I believe he mentioned it once, the doctor looked at him and laughed and said, why should I ask her permission to touch? I'm giving her an internal five minutes later. Sure. <laughs> yeah. With that type of attitude, you just didn't teach permission to touch. It was a waste of their time. Sure. So there's all sorts of places where dad's semantics had to match this stuffed shirt view of these people. Yeah. But even with that, my final memory of my father was him leading a, this after his heart attack, after he was a semi-invalid, and um, his yeah. second heart attack is what killed him. And just before that, he was leading a, research project on another application of hypnosis and he was doing it by setting up clinical tests in cities far enough apart that they would not uh, contaminate each other uh, results wise it was a very complicated way he did that yeah. and i watched him set it up and it was good science mm. Mm. um Thank you so much for that, um, uh, you know, and, and for sharing, and for, you know, thank you for your candor as far as that's concerned. Um, I, I mentioned it earlier, you know, that the popularity of, of Dave Ellman is is, is endured. Um, what what do you think has made Dave Ellman's work so popular, and why do you think that so many people still have the book Hypnotherapy as the, as their top choice of reading material for learning hypnotherapy? 
and may they continue to do so. It's still published. It's still available. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there are a couple of things that, that do that. One is the fact that it's a very easy read. Yeah. A, a second thing is the stuff in it works. A third is that it's very simple to learn, and the reasons it works are explained. So yeah. we go back to this thing I said about a process approach. It the, the whole book and his recordings are a process approach. So if you pick up the book, you know you're going to have an easy read. You know you're going to be able to apply the stuff, and you know it's going to work. Yeah. Uh, that combination makes it stick around. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, you know, that that appeal is there. I'm, I'm still. Um, I find, you know, and, and it's it's also, you know, you look on any uh, hypnosis professional, anyone worth their salt that's got a copy, and your eyes automatically zoom in on the book, uh, uh, the green hardback. You know, I, I, I always, uh, I always just zoom in. I can spot it anywhere on my shelf at any time. Um, now, what do you think is the is the main contribution that Dave Elman has made to the field of hypnotherapy? You know, and, and where do you think his influence is still affecting the field? There are several. Probably uh, one of his main contributions was his emphasis on rapid inductions. Mm. Not instance, because as my wife can tell you, because she doesn't like being induced with an instant induction, those can be jarring to some people. Yes. Not a progressive relaxation induction. Those are impractical for a physician who's got, say, a 12-minute space to handle a particular client and can only afford a three or four minute induction and still get his primary medical work done. Uh, yeah. And as I've already said, a rapid induction is its own convincer. So that's one. Uh, another extremely outstanding contribution was that proper and frequent use of regression stems to my father's work. Yeah. At that time, uh, most psychiatrists said that if you did uh, regression, hypnotic regression, without umpteen million controls and done by a, uh, by a very highly qualified psychiatrist, that you would immediately put somebody into uh, schizophrenia or psychosis. This is yeah. not true. But so long as this was the belief, not only among psychiatrists, but among hypnotists, they wouldn't go near it. Uh, there is a hypnotist who's revered today who followed after my father who actually lectured saying what I've just described and yet later on was remembered for uh, for regression work. Well, yeah. where did he get his regression information? From dad. Yeah. Uh, there were no such things at that time as parts therapy, affect bridge, forgiveness therapy, chair therapy. All of these came later. So as you listen to my father's uh, recordings or you read his book, you will find his methods in uh, hypnoanalysis slash hypnotherapy uh, are, by today's standards, sometimes crude. But what he did follow, and here I have to strongly advocate careful listening, is he did follow the fact that during regression you do not lead the witness, but during... Um, the uh, therapy that follows it, you are reframing, which means you are giving suggestions. Yeah, yeah. So you, you have to separate the two. And if you hear an eight-minute regression and therapy and one of his recordings, separating the two is very subtle. And you say, oh, Dave Elman led the witness. No, he did not. He was very careful about that. Yeah. But the transition is not obvious. Sure. I, I would like to also add that from when Larry took the course three times, and I know that one of the things he describes to our students is that there was definitely an evolution of his methods. If you listen to or um, or look at some of his class notes from, from the beginning yeah. and then look at later editions of it or listen to later recordings, as, as he and the doctors worked together, um, the doctors themselves were out there doing the field work and they would come in and say this is what I did and then as Larry said from from his bed he was still doing this with doctors but they would go out and he would have doctors in the same specialty try that same thing in other cities and so other uh, there was an evolution 
of his methods as they went along. Yes. Because additionally, it started out initially demonstrating um, hypnosis to a group of doctors. You know, yeah. he didn't set out to teach medical hypnosis. He fell into it. So, and it just kept growing. So that evolution, uh, and, and much today, I would love to have seen Dave today with everything that's going on and all the different methods and all the different people in it and the associations, um, how, how he, his methods would have continued to grow and that evolution. And that's why I think it would be great also. I would love um, if, if you're out there and you're using some of Dave Elman's methods and you have stories and cases that you would like to share with us, we would love to see how his work has evolved and been been um, put together with other hypnotherapists' um, work. And please email us your stories, your cases, because we would love to be able to compile that in some way and oh. share it with everybody. And, and so going forth with where Dave left off and where where his methods have continued to grow and and to evolve. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You know, please, anybody listening, um, um, do, do get in touch and, uh, and advise about that. I, I absolutely would have loved to have met Dave Elman, I must say. And um, I'm, like I'm going to do, like do with you guys, I would love to have sat in the pub with him and, uh, and discussed all things hypnosis. Um, um, uh, I know that we, 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 didn't, we didn't really prepare, and it's not something that I've discussed um, with you before, but quite a lot of people sort of um, I'm almost... almost put um ericsson and elman I'm, I'm almost in this almost like at competition with each other at times almost like a like a healthy rivalry um um, um is um, um is that something that's ever that's ever cropped up or is that just myth no everybody asks me that question i'm, I'm sick and tired of the question but i'll keep answering <laughs> right. it. um ericsson felt very strongly that my father's work should be stopped, and he repeatedly went out of his way to do so. Uh, he led crusades against my father's work. Um, he favored indirect suggestion, and uh, he, he could not understand how direct suggestion worked. I think he believed most stage hypnotists were fakes, at least he's made remarks like that, and he never, never really looked into what the mechanism was that Dad was using. Uh, I've heard recordings of him specifically stating things that I knew to be false, based upon his misperceptions. Um, Dad had no idea who he was, uh, and Dad uh, normally, when he was going to a new city, would ask for a list of all physicians holding licenses in that state, and send a form letter to all of them was basically an advertisement. Uh, Erickson received one such advertisement, replied very angrily to my father. My father made him what, what was at the time his standard offer was, come to one of my classes for free, see what I'm really doing, and perhaps your opinion will change. Yeah. Erickson never took him up on that, but because Erickson was actually licensed in several states, he received several such letters, and each time he'd write in a nasty gram, and each time my father would make the same offer. But the two never corresponded. They never met. Uh, their only contact was what I've just described. Yeah. Yet I personally have heard a recording of Erickson saying he'd had extensive personal correspondence with my father. Not true. Sure. But he was leading a campaign to have any work by any hypnotist who was not a psychiatrist stopped. Any. And he used my father as his big example of why they should all be stopped. Sure, sure. Now, um, um, on, a, uh, on another note, you know, the, the Dave Elman Institute exists and thrives today. Um, um, how did the Dave Elman Institute come to be? Um, tell us a bit about its purpose, its raison d'etre. Well, after, after uh, Larry spoke at NGH, and, uh, and, and I saw how much he really enjoyed speaking about his father and sharing it, and how much people 
really enjoyed getting to know the man, getting to know the more personal aspect than just the book out there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and realizing that many of the physicians or most of the physicians that had studied with him were no longer alive um, or out there. And um, so we decided to make it our mission to, um, while Larry was still here and sharing, to be able to share uh, uh, initially here in the United States and since then, you know, globally, uh, share Larry's personal experience of living with and studying with his dad. And uh, we have continued uh, and, and to keep those methods going forward so that, you know, they're there for generations. Yeah. And um, so we decided to um, to put together the Dave Elman Hypnosis Institute and um, and and that is and we have developed products with other hypnotists jointly, some DVD training products. Uh, Larry's written some books and we have some of Dad's stuff available and the book available. And it was our goal to keep that to keep that alive and to keep traveling. And we have done extensive traveling in the last few years. We're actually yeah. gonna we're cutting down our travel for a few months and just reacquainting ourselves with our house and <laughs> and, and our animals who miss us when we travel. And um, so it was just, wow, let's just do this. And I went out one day and got all the documentation and opened an office and pow, we started. And, uh, and you know, uh, we love it. Um, we love we love how we have gotten to travel and meet and see how this works in other cultures yeah. because it does have to change within different cultures. Sure. It does have to change a bit within languages. Uh, and 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 um, we thank very much our sponsors around the world for for the warmth and the enthusiasm they have shown in 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 receiving dad's work and having us there so well i think um, i think it's it's made all the easier for them by by how lovely you both are and and you know what a, how you how you're real torch bearers of such a progressive positive way for that but you know how how lovely you are with it you know it i've, I've been struck by it in my um uh, uh, in my introduction, you know everything that I that I said and say. Um, I'm, I'm, I really meant it's it's not meant to be gushing, you know. It's it's your real advocates and and such lovely warm people that I think it would be, you know, it, it's it's great that that the work gets continued in that way and in that vein and in that thread. Thank, well, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Uh, I have to add one thing, and that is. Cheryl is not only the business sense, but to a large extent, she's the vision sense. Um, she's really central to this whole effort. And after she watched how uh, important it was for it to be a team teaching type thing, she went and took as many classes as she could. And still does. And still does. <laughs> and did some wonderful clini uh, clinician work. And we team teach with her being very much an expert. And I really, really can't give her enough credit. Uh, I love her very, very much. And in addition to just plain loving her, I very highly respect her as a professional. Magic. Magic. Thank you. Thank you um, my, my sincere and heartfelt thank. I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure and a real privilege, a real honour having you on here. I'm going to do my best to twist your arm to get you on again in a, at a future date. And I'm and like I've said, I'm going to do my best to engineer us meeting and getting together and uh, perhaps even hosting you ourselves here with the school. Um, I'm Larry Cheryl Elman. Thank you very much for being part of Hypnosis Weekly. Thank, Thank you, you very much, and we look forward to to meeting you in the future. We are looking forward to that to that. What'd you say, warm beer? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The warm, warm beer, beer at the pub. I, I'm looking forward yeah. to it. I owe you both several <laughs> pints of warm beer in the pub. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank.
I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Um, it was great fun with very happy people. Um, people who are great role models for those seeking a happy, love-filled marriage too. If you're interested in becoming a Dave Elman Institute certified trainer, follow the links to their website at the Hypnosis Weekly webpage um, and get in touch with Larry and Cheryl. Um, now then, onwards and upwards, uh, hypnosis fact of the week. Further to our edition a couple of weeks ago where regression was discussed, this point was alluded to. Um, the fact of the week is that hypnosis does not increase the accuracy of memory or foster literal experiencing of childhood events. Um, and that's a study by uh, Sheehan and McConkie, 1993, and Nash, 1987, support uh, those points. And though these studies have been peer-reviewed and undergone scrutiny, they are supported by other more recent studies too. Yet a popular myth and misconception is that hypnosis somehow guarantees veracity of memory, and it's simply not the case. If you want a reminder of our ongoing competition, do go and listen to either of the previous two editions of Hypnosis Weekly and keep tuned for me using that special word, if that is, I haven't used it today already. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming the exceptional talent that is the singing hypnotist, Mr. Chris Green, who I'll be interviewing and then discussing in depth what happens when a stage hypnosis show is entirely sung, and really getting into some fascinating insight into a currently unique way of utilising and applying hypnosis. I have many more exciting guests lined up here in future weeks. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references in the discussions today along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Again, please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks once again go to the very lovely Larry and Cheryl Elman and my thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, Goodbye for now.